everyone, and welcome to the Circular Economy Playbook, the podcast all about our tricky relationship with stuff and how to fix it. I'm Ali Moore, Head of Comms and Behaviour Change at We London, and I am delighted today to be joined by our Chief Executive, Wayne Hubbard. Hi, Wayne. Hi, Ali. Thanks for inviting me. It's lovely to have you back on the podcast, Wayne. Feels like just yesterday. So today we've got a really fascinating episode delving into the professional side of what we, and I guess a lot of our listeners do, We'll be exploring the jobs, skills and training required to work in the circular economy, as well as some of the economic and societal shifts needed to accelerate the transition to a circular economy at scale. So Wayne, do you want to tell us a bit more about today's guest? Yes, today's guest is Sarah Mukherjee, MBE, and she's the CEO of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, known to most people as AIMA. So if you haven't come across AIMA, it is a global membership body for sustainable professionals. Their members are made up of over 20,000 individuals and 300 organisations working, studying or interested in the environment and sustainability. So they're basically a professional body right at the centre of the sustainability agenda, connecting businesses, individuals across industries, sectors and borders to make the world greener, whether that means working in energy or transport, materials use and the circular economy. So IEMA also run a circular economy network specifically about the things that obviously we're interested in here at ReLondon. And they deliver an annual work program of activities through that network, including webinars, training, workshops, reports, and much more. Yeah, they ran a few events with us as part of Circular Economy Week last year. And yeah, hopefully we'll do again this year. So it's clearly a growing area of interest for them and their members. I'm really looking forward to hearing about their work in training and upskilling people for a circular economy because we've done a lot of work ourselves, haven't we, at ReLondon, exploring and mapping out the jobs and skills required for London's low-carbon circular future. And of course, we published a report on this topic during Circular Economy Week last June, a report called The Circular Economy at Work, which you can read on our website. Yeah, I mean, lots of people are working in this space. For example, the Chartered Institution of Waste Management have done a lot of work just recently on this area too. And our research and modelling shows the potential for a more circular economy to create over a quarter of a million new jobs for London by 2030, building on the existing quarter of a million circular jobs in the workforce that we already have. Crucially, though, those new jobs aren't just in waste and recycling. They're everywhere, right across a wide variety of sectors in the economy, as well as at a diverse range of skill levels, creating a whole raft of opportunities for accessible well-paid jobs for all Londoners. And Daima published a report too last year on green, rather than just circular, green skills. And it outlines how organisations can accelerate the development of green skills across the UK's workforce, helping businesses adapt and train their workforce in tackling climate change. And we'll provide a link to that in the show notes if anyone would like to take a look. Really interesting stuff. And as well as upskilling sustainability professionals, IEMA does a lot of work in developing and influencing policy to enable that transition to a circular economy at scale and at pace. We'll hear from Sarah a bit about the types of policy changes and shifts in economic thinking that they're looking at. Yeah, it's something we often find frustrating at ReLondon. Policy changes around climate action and cutting emissions tend to focus on energy, transport and production, usually ignoring consumption emissions which is frustrating when we know that 45% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the food, materials and products that we make, use and consume every day. AIMA has some great recommendations and insights into what policies are needed to address this. 
Yeah, they do indeed. So let's crack on, shall we? Let's hear from our guest, Sarah Mukherjee. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Sarah Mukherjee, and I am Chief Executive of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, or IEMA for short. Everybody calls it IEMA in our world, don't they? And I wonder if everybody can name it in its entirety. So what does IEMA do, Sarah? Can you just run through how it works as an organisation and what its scope is? We are, in a nutshell, the global professional body for individuals and organisations who are working, studying or indeed interested in the environment and sustainability. We have just more than 20,000 members now. I have to keep changing it because it keeps going up and I know we're going to talk a little bit about the popularity of sustainability a bit later, but it is going up. And we have also a growing base of corporate partners and members from different economic sectors. We provide all the things that you would expect a professional institute to provide. So learning and development courses and resources for members. So if you want to do that deep dive, assessed, professional route. I mean, the point of IEMA really was when it was set up was to give a professional structure the same way that engineers and lawyers and accountants have around sustainability. And also we have a very vigorous policy kind of debates within between members and obviously our staff team to support that. And we work quite hard at UN national and regional level to see the change that our members want to see. And obviously, we're talking to you because we're interested in the circular economy, but that's just an element, isn't it, of uh, the wider environmental picture. What kind of broad areas of environmental management do you see covered by your members? Well, pretty much. I mean, I think the really interesting thing is that there are very few areas that kind of aren't covered now. So the conventional environmental management roles, as you can imagine, environmental impact assessment, for example, large number of environmental impact professionals, biodiversity, ecology, general sustainability managers. And it's been quite interesting to see, I took over as CEO a couple of years ago. And even since then, there's been a big change in the breadth. I mean, I I would say so. I mean, when I arrived, there was a I got a lot of members saying, do you know, we are banging on the door of the C-suite and nobody's listening. We're parked in corporate services or HR, you know, somewhere on the kind of periphery of the organisation. And even in the time that I've been CEO, that has begun to shift to now the C-suite have opened the door and they're saying, right, what have we got to do? How can we become sustainable? And that brings its own challenges because organizational change is sometimes difficult it's sometimes difficult to seed and we've now got an issue where we've got more people who need sustainability professionals than there are indeed sustainability professionals but that is a, you know, it's a good position to be in for those of us in the sustainability world it's a very good position to be in is there anything particular in the last couple of years that started coming through more in terms of interest areas i mean we talked about the level but what kind of content's coming out I mean, a lot around finance and procurement. I think those individuals, and we're we're working a lot on, in fact, setting up new member interest groups around sustainable finance more widely. And I think that comes, I mean, one of our mantras, if you like, is all jobs greener. And getting to the point where actually sustainability is as much a part of every bit of the organisation as, for example, health and safety or audit and risk or financial accountability. Interestingly, I've had a couple of conversations in the last week with some very big organisations that are looking to see how they can align their audit, their financial reporting with their sustainability reporting as well. So I think that is always the key, isn't it? When you start 
looking at the money and the finances and people are beginning to take it seriously in that context. That's always, a, I think, a sign of organisational progress. So let's have a think about circular economy specifically. I noticed that you made some recommendations organisationally around circular economy and resource productivity targets as part of the Environment Act commitments um, last year. And one of your main recommendations is for an absolute decoupling of resource use from GDP and economic growth, which is something that we've talked about internally at ReLondon for a few years, but that's really hard, isn't it? So how do you think something like that might be possible? Well, you're right, it is hard. But back to the point I was making about making the change that our members want to see. And I think you don't have to be involved in sustainability for long to see that this makes absolute sense. And it is difficult. And it's made particularly difficult by this make, use, dispose economy that we have not just in the UK, but really around the world. Mm. At the moment, economic growth is intrinsically linked to greater resource use and GHG emissions. And that's how we account, that's how we metricize is that use and dispose. But it's quite obvious that if we are to meet domestic and international climate change targets, we have to change the trend. And that has to, in our opinion, involve a decoupling, as you said, of resource use from GDP. So shifting the function towards sustainable production and consumption, creating and adopting those circular strategies, refurbishment, renting, sharing, and changing the prism through which we look at the, whether the economy is successful or not, it absolutely has to be a key. Now, back to that thing about change management. This is a massive change. None of us at IEMA are diminishing how radical that change needs to be because it's a completely different way of viewing the wealth of the economy. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be happening. If somebody came up with GDP at some point, that was a new concept. We have to have another concept that reflects the overall health of the wider economy in its widest sense, in its most sustainable sense. And we say that has to be around decoupling, making that big decouple and doing it as quickly as possible, really. The behaviour change professional in me is thinking that sounds like a loss in a way. How do you positively frame that like what does it bring to decouple what are the gains that we could get from that so sort of societally I guess as well as professionally well I, th- I think it puts a very different emphasis on what good looks like I think you begin to expose an awful lot of value within an economy that we're just not recognizing at the moment so the value of treating any good as not just the value of what has been added to it to make the product, but the intrinsic value of its resources as well. And that's very difficult to reflect in current GDP accounting. The genuine value that's added by repairing or recycling, by breaking things down into their constituent parts and reusing them again. And it's it's pretty much going back, back to the future with a lot of the models that look like they would work for the future. And exactly that, you know, when we all have had particularly my gran who was a young woman during the war you would never throw anything out because you know there might be a use for it or you might be able to hand it on to somebody else or repurpose it and getting back to that view and I think at the moment in a cost of living crisis really this is probably one of the easier times to make that case I would have thought when energy is so expensive and resources are so precious to so many people and as I said, you've got to start from somewhere. So we might as well start it sooner rather than later. We all can see this is coming down the track. Maybe we'll hop on to that subject quickly then. You mentioned the cost of living crisis. We've been thinking a lot about that here at ReLondon recently, about what this role of circular economy is, whether it has a 
benefit to bring. And we definitely think that it can build resilience and help people manage costs more effectively in the long term. Are your members talking about this at the moment, that wider social and economic context? And do you think that the cost of living crisis is getting in the way of people focusing on sustainability sometimes right now? I suppose if you, you know, there's two ways of looking at it, isn't it? There's the one way, which is to say people are so concerned about the cost of loan, quite understandably so, that sustainability is kind of dropping down the, the voters' wish list. But I think that's quite binary in a way, because at the moment, and I'm sure, you know, you're seeing this not only anecdotally, but you know, the number of people who are going to vintage shops, the number of renting and sharing, informal and more formal arrangements that are going on. Some estimates, for example, show that the refurbished laptop and phone market in Europe is expected to grow by about 12% from 2019 to 2027. So I think as things become more expensive because energy is expensive and every single process in the economy pretty much is energy driven one way or the other, the value that's attached to things is becoming greater and the ability to reuse and recycle and repurpose is becoming more apparent, I would have thought. But as you said, there's that kind of meta view of, well, I don't have time to worry about sustainability because I've got rent to pay, I've got the kids to feed, I've got to make sure that we're warm as well. And I think this goes back to your early point about GDP. We need to have a regulatory framework that makes it as easy as possible to do the right thing. And at the moment, the framework makes it as easy as possible to do the wrong thing, almost. We don't make it easy for people to recycle electrical goods, particularly despite having directives to support that. We don't make it particularly easy for small businesses to make a living out of or make a business model out of refurbishing and repairing goods. It's much easier to sell new stuff. And so it's almost that kind of Irish proverb, I wouldn't start from here. It's in an ideal world, we wouldn't have ever started from here. But starting from the obvious place, which is how can we make sure we get as many cycles of use out of this thing before we collectively agree there is no more value in the thing itself and then we can start to break it up to constituents' parts. That's where, really, in a cost of living crisis, you would have thought makes all sorts of sense. And it's in every single sector. I mean, even if you think about the amount of food, I used to be a BBC environment correspondent and and a presenter on farming today. And it's the amount of food that gets wasted because supermarkets decide it's not fit for purpose, whatever number of often very spurious reasons, is a crime. Really, it's absolutely criminal to see carrots or cabbages being just ploughed back into the field because people have decided they don't need them anymore when we have people going hungry. And so, so much waste that's already in the system that we could usefully use in order to reduce overall production and consumption. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we work across food as well as the non-organic resources here and Yeah, I think food is one of those emotive areas, isn't it, as well, that it's so crucial to everybody's life and well-being. And yeah, I think the focus on it at the moment is the cost of living crisis is not a helpful thing, but it, it, in a way, it's kind of throwing a bit of a light on that. Yeah, I'll I'll give you another example. Again, you can't make a policy out of a load of anecdotes, but I was really struck by this the other day. So I've, as I gradually crawl into middle age, I have had to give up and, you know, just except that I need very focals, like a genuine old person now. So I've had to go and get my very focals for working at the computer. So I've got two pairs of new glasses. I have two pairs of old glasses. It is almost impossible, seemingly, to recycle 
perfectly good spectacles with perfectly good frames, either to find a charity. I mean, there are charities, but they're all completely overwhelmed that will take them to developing countries where they could be used by people who need them. Or anyway, it should be as easy as, you know, dropping off a letter, really. Why is that so hard? But bearing in mind all the materials within those pair of glasses. And that's the same for almost everything. It's, oh, it's rubbish now. We've now decided that this thing is rubbish despite being full of valuable and uh, often virgin and irretrievable, sometimes, uh, well, retrievable, but finite materials. We're just going to chuck it in a slack heap somewhere. And I haven't come across an opticians that, because I've been buying new glasses recently as well, coincidentally, and I, and I didn't come across any opticians who were offering any kind of money off for bringing back your frames. And when I asked one of them if I could use my old frames, they looked really quite surprised that I would consider doing that and went, well, I suppose so. I could check, but I think that might be possible. Yeah. You see, mine couldn't even do that. They said it was impossible. And so I said, well, can I give you these ones so you could use them again? I thought, you know what, if I do, he'll just put them in the bin. (laughs) So I'm hanging on to them. So if anybody knows what to do with secondhand glasses or glasses, they're perfectly good, but could do with another owner. (laughs) Well, we'll try and dig it out before we finish this episode and maybe we'll give people a tip at the end of this episode about how we might do that. So that focus on consumption rather than just production of materials and and goods, do you think that that narrative is actually getting through to policymakers? Because it was a point of great frustration for a while that all the conversations at COP and NDCs was around energy and transport. Do you think progress is being made? Well, there is new policy that's coming on stream domestically, and obviously we welcome the intention to boost the better recovery of material. But I think you know a lot of the new policy focuses more on recycling and doesn't necessarily fully tackle those issues around consumption. For example, the environmental improvement plan that came out recently from DEFRA, or the government said they'd publish a new and I think it was something around maximising resources and minimising waste programme. Sounds brilliant, doesn't it? Lots of different priorities like textiles, construction, vehicles, food and a few others. But there's no timescales. So you've got the narrative there, but there isn't actually the delivery mechanisms on the ground or the policy or the speed that's needed. And and you mentioned the international perspective. Now, there are pockets of activity, the COP process you mentioned and the EU level with the Circular Economy Action Plan. But there are also specific initiatives like the UN Treaty on Plastic Pollution. But overall, and I think we all get, when those of us working in the policy space, just a little bit, it's like the broken record. It's really difficult to see global, consistent, cohesive collaboration when it comes to developing circular economies. And these are economies where there's a very different set of people who will be winners and losers. I think you know, developing countries would have an awful lot of value to be generated from circular economy works as well. It would add value overall, but it's just getting the ducks in a row that seems to be really, really challenging sometimes. Do you think it's anything to do with the shortening of supply chains that is inevitable with a more circular economy, that it kind of slightly erodes globalisation in a way? Uh, Yes. I mean, I think that there is a lot of... (sighs) The reason I hesitate slightly is that I think there are a lot of people who want to do the right thing, but organisations have been structured in a way, a particular way for the last 50 or 60 years, which is to maximising profit out of 
raw materials, virgin materials often, and then who cares what happens at the end of it? You know, our deal with you, consumer, is done as soon as you hand the money over and then we're not interested. And actually changing that model, I mean, just the kind of bandwidth you need to change the model is really, really tough. We mustn't diminish the change that is needed. But you're right, it's more local, everything's shorter, everything within the circular economy, the distances and everything are likely to be shorter as well. And it's a very different structure. So, you know, where are the hubs? How do you disaggregate materials in order to re-aggregate them into something else? Where is that going to be taking place? What sort of skills? And we haven't even touched on that yet. The skills that we need, Mm. and it's not just the kind of latte drinking classes when we talk about sustainability, it's plumbers, it's electricians, it's people actually doing proper jobs out in proper places. We need so many more of them in order to provide the skills infrastructure for this sort of economy to get going. Mm. So what about the skills then? Let's go to that. What kind of skill shift do you think is going to be required? And and are you changing your training programmes and your CPD to deal with that? Well, I'll give you one example. So if you think about the number of electric vehicle charging points that there are, there's been a lot of that in the press recently. People who've bought electric cars and are going back to petrol or sometimes in some cases diesel because they've been just unable to manage with the car to charge it effectively or they run out of charge because there aren't any charging points. So I think the number is something like 2,300, 2,500 a month we need of electric vehicle charging points from now until 2030 if we're going to actually have the infrastructure that we need for an electric vehicle economy. Obviously, that is not happening and we need thousands more electricians in order to meet that demand. So that's just one small example. Another one is one of our fellows had an air source heat pump put in and that air source heat pump was put in by a a trained engineer and obviously an apprentice. And the apprentice was the only one of his group of apprentices doing renewables. Someone hasn't got the memo, have they? (laughs) So when you have your non-gas boiler fitted, what on earth is going to happen when we've got nobody actually available to do it? So we're making this case all the time. And I think we're not alone in that. There are lots of other individual businesses and institutions that are. In terms of our training modules, what we're trying to do is make sure that the people who can train well in this area are doing so and we're helping them by accrediting courses so accrediting apprenticeships and that sort of thing and making the case for greater skills but you're you're right we are at the moment undergoing quite a a large program of conversations with trainers with universities with schools as well to see and with particularly with our members about what we think the skills of the future will be needed which ones will be needed and how we can reflect that in our own courses as well so the Institute is obviously there primarily as a, as a membership organisation to support a very specific professionalism. So, you know, we recognise you're not there to train, for instance, engineers to put heat pumps in, but it's a sustainability sector that you look after. How is that profession? What's its state of health? How's it getting along? I think we've touched on it a bit, but is it a happy sector at the moment? It's a very, very busy sector. And I think it is a white hot sector. I speak to a lot of students at business schools and on, on some of our accredited courses. And I said, you know, just here are the figures. I mean, I have some quotations I've got from some of our big business members, who one of whom described it as a war for talent. 
at the moment. We've got some members who are trying to find relevant people within their own organisations and train them up in sustainability, which is great. I mean, it's, just, it's a great position to be in. And in fact, one of our members in the early phases of their career was showing me recently their LinkedIn profile, which was basically begging letters from Hedy Hunter saying, can you please, please come and work with this company? They'll give you much more money and you know, they'll give you Fridays off and all this sort of thing, just in order to get their skills. So this is a great position to be in. It's not without its challenges because, of course, it does mean that there will be people who aren't skilled coming into the market. And whenever there's a demand to be filled, there will be people who are not necessarily the right people to, to fill it. And also, it means that we're slowing down instead of speeding up with the pace of change that we need to see. But we always have, one again, one of our other mantras is all jobs green. And we need to make sure that whoever you are, you have an understanding of sustainability and what your role in the organization is in order to deliver those goals. So again, one of the conversations we're having is with other sectors and with other professional institutions to see if there's a way of working collaboratively in order to make sure that the professionals of the future have appropriate qualifications in both. Mm. And presumably has an implication for school curriculums as well. Totally. We speak to, in fact, we're just launching a Green Careers Hub, which is in its early stages at the moment, but we hope eventually to be producing material for 14 to 16 and 16 to 18 year olds who I think you know, we, we start at and a lot of professional institutions start at university with student membership. But in a way, that's too late. If you're, particularly if you're from a disadvantaged background, you are less likely to have people who know about sustainability and who be able to help you find a career that is a sustainability career and it's something that will fulfill you and sustain you professionally and personally for life so providing those case studies you know if you're interested in sustainability and you're doing these subjects this is the sort of career you could have I think is a bit of a gap in the market so we hope we'd be filling a free of charge but I say gap in the market we're not charging anyone for this this is something we think is the right thing to do so watch this space it's green careers hub it's a separate website so if you have a look and uh, see what you think and if you if you're in sustainability and you have a case study that you can share that would be brilliant particularly for minoritized communities people who are not necessarily gliding into a path in sustainability this should be a sector for everyone and we're really passionate to make sure that that happens I'll definitely go and have a look at that. It's something that we struggle with right across the sector, I think, is is recruiting a properly diverse range of people and keeping them involved and engaged with the sector. So so we do have something else, which is exactly that's that we set that up a couple of years ago. I'm one of the few people of colour leading an organisation in this space. It was something very personal to me and I'm very grateful to our board for supporting this because we put a reasonable amount of money into this initiative, which is aiming to bring people together and help them to collaborate, to break down those barriers, not just for people of colour, but for LGBTQA plus communities, for people with physical challenges and neurodiversity to make it a much more welcoming and inclusive place. I think that sounds like a fantastic initiative. I suspect it's a pretty good place to work, Aima. Well, thank you. And I know that you've just been awarded a great place to work certification. Is that right? We have. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Ali. I mean, this sounds really cheesy, but I think this is, for me, one of the highlights of my career because it's all done on staff team questionnaires, which are anonymous, of course. So it's actually us amazing staff team members who feel it's a great place to work. It's not you know, a team of inspectors who come and make a decision. And 
it has been challenging. I think it's been a challenging road, as some of the staff team will know, to get there. But I'm so happy that they feel that we are recognising we're a not-for-profit. We can't pay super commercialised salaries, but we can treat people as well as we possibly can. And, you know, if you're, if you're a sustainability organisation, that surely is part of the wider sustainability to make sure that people have sustainable jobs and they can feel resilient in them and we're not burning people out after three or four years. Well, exactly. And presumably their happiness has an impact on your members and the quality of the services they're providing. Totally. And that's exactly the feedback we got when we put that on our LinkedIn site. I got some lovely responses from members saying, oh, the staff team are always so helpful. It's always such a joy to talk to our EMA staff team members. And, and it is actually, it is a joy to talk to our staff team members and our members more widely. It's, it's, I'm, I'm very blessed, really. Yeah, that's fantastic news. Well done. Thank you. So we normally finish up with the same question for everyone about the fact that we've had a pretty difficult few years, not just in the UK, but globally, and it doesn't currently look like it's going to get much better in the near future. What gives you hope, Sarah? What gets you up in the morning? And what are you seeing at the moment and experiencing at the moment that is making you really feel positive about the future? Yeah, you're you're not wrong. It has been tough and it carries on being tough. And I think the speed of change, everybody's finding quite frustrating sometimes but our members are brilliant and they're doing brilliant things for example we've got one member who I saw at COP in fact when we were there who is a part of a team that is creating 3D printed models of coral reefs which are clay based so there's no nasty them completely recyclable biodegradable they're putting them on seabeds and they grow coral four times faster than the most conventional other conventional methods oh that's just given me a little rush of hope that's just i just felt my heart lift when you were saying that that's fantastic it's amazing yeah is that just amazing exactly isn't it fantastic we've got fellows who are working on hydrogen jet engines i mean they're just brilliant and that's why i think you have to be optimistic because there are so many people who are working on this we probably wouldn't have even been having this conversation even five or certainly not 10 years ago it just wasn't a thing it was a something you put on a page 105 of the annual report and if you're the staff team in fleeces out digging something in a wetland or something and that yeah hooray job done and now this is absolutely fundamental to the successful running of your organization so I think I you have to be optimistic I see you know lots of reasons for optimism in within a very very challenging framework I know but I think Every day is a day that's moving us a bit further to where we need to be. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for the very inspiring work that you and your members are all doing. Um, Yeah, it's really great to talk to you. So thank you very much. Oh, it's been a total pleasure, Ali. And so nice to talk to you as well. And a great conversation. Thank you. Such an interesting conversation. So Sarah made that great point that in order to meet domestic and international climate targets, we need an absolute decoupling of resource use from GDP and economic growth. And I think that's something we totally agree with at ReLondon. But it's easy to say, not easy to do. Radically overhauling the economy will require a mass shift in behaviour, not just policy. So where do we start with that is such a daunting undertaking. How do we even begin to decouple resource use from GDP in practice? I guess there are things that we can do without requiring policy change. And we think the best tactic is to start local. So with direct and physical interventions, which are key to unlocking behaviour change. So 
for example, in London, there are around 600 neighbourhoods or there are 600 high streets and 90% of Londoners live within 10 minutes of the local high street. So that's where we can make the change. And at ReLondon, we try to connect up local authorities and businesses to co-create projects with those communities. But ones that are designed for their lifestyles. And coincidentally, we've just won a Sustainable City Award for one of those projects, working with the London Borough of Bexley, tackling household food waste, which involved a couple of SMEs that we've worked with before, Olio and Kitch, who both have apps designed to reduce food waste. That's a real result that we've just found out about this week. And how about that work that we're doing in Hounslow? That seems relevant. Yeah, exactly. So we're currently working with residents and the London Borough of Hounslow to create a circular economy neighbourhood in Heston called Heston in the Loop, which means engaging the community with new ways of reducing their waste. And it can also mean, by the way, that people can save money and maybe even get to know their neighbours, which is a great community thing. The project in Hounslow includes repair workshops, rental and sharing apps, secondhand pop-ups, interactive circular economy events. And by involving the community in the planning and keeping it super local, we think we can maximise the likelihood of long-term behavioural change. We also work with over 300 London-based SMEs and innovators all circular, through our business transformation programme. So we match them up with localised grant funding to build a more resilient and sustainable local economy. And we also give them advice and support to help them either move to a more circular business model or help them scale up what they're doing. And giving these kinds of locally based SME support is a great way for local authorities to engage with businesses in their borough and to create more jobs to employ more local people in green jobs. And talking of green jobs, it was really encouraging to hear Sarah share how there is, what was it she said, white hot demand for sustainability professionals at all levels right now, which is music to our ears, and how demand is outstripping supply currently. So that means, of course, that upskilling is really radically needed across all sorts of jobs, I guess, at different levels and in different sectors. Yeah, and platforms like IEMA's new Green Careers Hub are really useful in fostering the access, inclusivity and diversity across all skill sectors. And our own business transformation team have set a similar circular jobs kind of notice board to which lots of SMEs in our cohort used to recruit. But it's still quite a challenge, I think, to reach and recruit people into green circular jobs across all levels of society. I wonder, we've talked about this before, you and me, but maybe there is still a misconception about sustainability being only made up of elitist white collar jobs. Well, possibly. But I mean, really, circular jobs cover a a wide array of business models ranging from providing repair services or rental and sharing apps or selling secondhand items or finding innovative ways to repurpose and redistribute wasted materials. And we know from our own research and modelling, and again, you can read about it in our jobs and skills report, which is called the circular economy at work. We know that growing the circular economy could particularly help London's young labour force, as well as others who have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic, helping to create accessible, well-paid job opportunities for all Londoners. And the circular economy is also quite a lucrative opportunity for London. So 
the circular economy here in the city currently contributes around eleven billion pounds to London's economy. Wow! Yes, huge. But that could be even huger, and it's got the potential to grow to around twenty-four billion by twenty thirty. Well, that is why we champion the circular economy. Yeah. Moving to a low-carbon circular economy isn't an idealistic, optional extra. It's an effective and practical way to help towns and cities tackle some of their current socio-economic problems. So far from creating additional expenses, going greener lowers costs and builds more resilience against future financial and climate shocks. That's exactly right. So for those interested, definitely check out our report, The Circular Economy at Work. It's on our website and we'll pop it into the show notes as well. And we'll share the link to IEMA's Green Careers Hub as well in the show notes. So, excellent. Thank you so much, Wayne, for taking the time to co-host today. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to have you on. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Circular Economy Playbook. You can catch up on all our other episodes and hear ideas from more brilliant thinkers on this podcast feed. Just subscribe in your favourite app. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet us at relondon underscore UK or head to the website relondon.gov.uk. See you again soon. 